Good afternoon and welcome to the Jason Rancho on AM 770 KTTH, streaming on the KTTH smartphone app. Apparently, it now takes a credible bomb at an encampment before Seattle will sweep it. That is what's trending. What's trending? The homelessness crisis. I mean, this is all rather confusing, concerning. We're almost at parody level. There's some additional fallout from this fire at the encampment on Mercer Street, the on-ramp to I-5 South. There is a, a, a faux controversy out of Burien when it comes to homelessness. We're at a point where either this is all going to implode or we're not going to be able to turn the corner and it's too far gone. I don't know where we're going to go. We're at that fork in the road. We're at that insert metaphor that makes my point. We'll start in Seattle because we're getting a little bit more information from that fire. Again, the video is on twitter.com uh, slash Jason Rants. I'll be talking about it later this evening with uh, Jesse Waters primetime. But we're told, uh, according to the homeless suspect, 46-year-old, that he knocked over a candle while he was cleaning his tent. And before he knew it, the tent and some of the brush caught fire. And then before he knew it, he apparently was running away. Now, he said, according to the court documents, that he tried to put it out, but he couldn't before it spread. But officers ended up locating him a couple blocks away because, according to the witnesses, he fled. Now, the judge found probable cause yesterday set bail at $50,000. Prosecutors wanted $150,000. This is a homeless guy who doesn't appear has family here or family connection. So 50000 is probably fine. He'll stay in jail. We'll get the charging decision tomorrow. The prosecuting attorney's office has until tomorrow. Now, the encampment has been there over a year. And Over the last several months, it's grown and grown and grown. Because you'll recall, it started out as just being this little single structure home. Like an actual tiny home that the homeless, I thought it was a couple, had built there. And now it's got a bunch of tents. There's about a dozen or so people who live there. We're all in this neighborhood being terrorized by 10 people. It's absolutely insane. They're protecting 10 plus people over about 2,000 innocent people. Now, that's someone who lives nearby, right across the street. Remember, there are a bunch of apartment complexes right around there, including one apartment complex, the one that's closest to this encampment, has an external gas line, which, again, I could be wrong because I don't remember anything I learned in science, but I believe that's flammable and it could lead to a of some kind. Sounds flammable. That's my understanding of how this all works. And you heard her make a an observation we've made many times, which is the city doesn't treat the taxpayers with any respect, but goes out of its way. To allow homeless people to just live wherever it is they want to live. Because we're the saps who pay our taxes. Who say, yeah, you know, we're going to do the right thing and play by the rules. And they take advantage of us. 
while they allow homeless people to do whatever it is they want to do. And she has the same question that I have, which is effectively, what's the bar that needs to be met before the city, the county, the state goes in and clears an encampment because there was a murder there of a 66-year-old woman who was strangled to death? Her body was there for four days before it was discovered. There was an alleged rape that occurred there. And of course, there were other fires. This one would make, according to some of the reporting I've been able to find, I've been looking at the individual reports of fires. This is at least the ninth fire that we're aware of that has been reported, which probably means it's at least the 217th fire. I thought the homicide would have done it. Yes. And then when they figured out it wasn't an OD, that it was an actual strangulation, um, I thought that was it. Now, that used to be the standard. In fact, I used to almost jokingly state that that used to be the standard, that the city waits until there's a murder before they get involved. But obviously, we can no longer say that. We haven't been able to say that for a very long time. Murder is no longer the bar that uh, an encampment would have to meet in order to get it cleared. So what will it take to clear an encampment like this? Well... It was a question that was asked to Seattle City Council Member Andrew Lewis, who represents this district that this encampment is in. And he also speaking with Como TV was basically saying the reporter said, I think it was Michelle Esteban. Hey, you remember that encampment from a few weeks ago that was technically on state owned property? And there was that big explosion there because there were two rival homeless encampments fighting over drugs. You all finally at the city level just said, okay, this is emergency. We're going in because that fire was intense and it was right by Harborview. So why is that fire no longer considered an emergency scenario that would push the city to get involved? What has to happen? If there was a credible 911 report of an incendiary device of a bomb in the encampment, yes, we can go in to protect health and safety like we did with the encampment over by Harborview. Okay, I did say, and I made this point yesterday, and probably many times before that, I just want to know what that bar is. I just want to know what the the issue has to be before you clear. Just tell me the rules. And so now we know you have to wait until there is a credible threat, a call, that there's an incendiary device of some kind at the encampment. Okay. While I think that that is a foolish place to have to go to or a level to meet or reach before you clear up an encampment, I will say at least we now know. Right? I think that that is, I will give him, I will give him uh, some kudos. You're putting us all in danger and you're incompetent and don't know what it is you're doing. And it's remarkable that you're even in a position of power over our lives to begin with. But at least he finally just said it. At least he finally just told us this is what has to happen before we clear an encampment as an emergency. If there was a credible 911 report of an incendiary device of a bomb in the encampment, yes, we can go in to protect health and safety like we did with the encampment over by Harborview. Now, keep in mind, he said a credible call. I was talking with Brian Suits about this this morning because we were all like, let's call in a bomb threat which we didn't actually do because that would have been illegal and unethical. Although I would argue moral because it would have led to the clearing. That wouldn't be credible. 
because it's made up. So someone has to see a bomb at this encampment before it gets cleared. Oof. And of course, Andrew Lewis wants to push this on the county and the state. It's state-owned property, even though it's in the city of Seattle. And at the state level, they've said, we're not going to do anything unless King County Regional Homelessness Authority gets them homes, not shelters, but homes. Here's Andrew Lewis. Yeah, I mean, they should expect immediate reaction uh, mm-hmm. to get yeah. that site resolved from all mm-hmm. of the parties that share responsibility well, for it. Well, you're, you're one of the parties that shares responsibility for it. So what exactly are you doing? Are you calling attention to this issue? Are you sounding the alarms? Are you holding press conferences? Are you sending out tweets, tagging Governor Jay Inslee and Dow Constantine and saying, please help us? Please get involved? No, you're not doing anything. You're not doing a thing because you do not care. And even though this is an election time for him, still doesn't do anything. That tells you how little he cares. It doesn't show you how little control they have over state land because they could declare this an emergency. And let me tell you something. As much as the Andrew Lewis standard is having a bomb, that is not the standard for declaring an emergency. There is not a single person who would be in a position to stop this, like a judge, the courts, would not say that this does not qualify as an emergency. And yet they're still not doing anything. And at some point, I have to imagine the public pressure will be too much. They'll go in and say, okay, we're declaring an emergency. And then we can go back to Andrew Lewis and say, but, 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 what about the bomb? Did you guys find a bomb? It's out of control. And so many cities have been dealing with out-of-control homelessness. They've been responding in varying ways. Out in Burien, they've been plagued by this one particular encampment, group of homeless people who went from City Hall to a park, and then now outside of like a grocery outlet. And I'm told the city of Burien now has a controversial plan to sweep that encampment, possibly. And, of course, it's not actually controversial, but we're supposed to pretend it's controversial because fringe council members and really just one and some community activists who don't support any sweeps because they tell us it's controversial. And that's how Cairo 7 framed it. It's a controversial plan. It's not a controversial plan. What is the plan? They might contract with a private group called The More We Love. Now, we had them on. We had the founder or the person who's running the thing, Christine Moreland. She was on the show last week. And she explained what it is she does and the results that she's been able to achieve. Actually getting people into either shelter or detox. She's someone who has kind of proven the fact that, yeah, if you leave it to the city, the county, the state, a government agency, they're not going to be able to do it. She spoke with Cairo 7. Detox is available. Programs are available. Housing is available. And we just need to make sure they're connected. And all these barriers, it's just the bureaucracy of it all that doesn't need to be there. She gets around the bureaucracy and actually gets something done. Now, this group, the more we love this company, this business, and it is a business, I guess. They charge $515 per camper to get moved or a little over $20,000 for a 40-person sweep. Now, obviously, that goes into the resources that they're using to get people out and, of course, the man hours. 
So the city is considering whether or not they're going to go with this group to clear it out. Their official agenda on Friday will include at least a discussion on this. But we know where some people stand, at least. We know where Cindy Moore stands. She is the one who's the farthest to the left on this Burien City Council. Unlike our friend, uh, Mora. Stephanie Mora. Stephanie Mora. Friend of the show, she actually understands what's going on. Cindy Moore, nah. I would certainly hesitate to invest public funding, of which we have very little, into an organization that can't provide any documentation of their you know, effectiveness. They can, huh? Tell me the results from the King County Regional Homelessness Authority. Because here's something that I know is a matter of fact. The people who were previously at the encampment are no longer there. The more we love connected them with shelter. So that one particular encampment is gone. Now, did some of them maybe go somewhere else? Maybe. I don't know. But I know the one that they were tasked with removing is no longer there. So they've been more effective than the county has been on one project. They've been more effective as the county has been on hundreds. And people like Robin, who owns a business there, she's sick and tired of all of this. That was the third time the encampment had been moved. And at that point, the businesses realized that we're going to have to take care of this ourselves. They are saying enough is enough. We can no longer count on our government to help us, which is a good lesson for them to learn. I wish it didn't take this long for them to learn it, but it's a great lesson. You can't rely on them. And let's keep something in mind, folks who are listening and live in Burien. Cindy Moore is up for reelection. Now, during the primary, it was a four-way race. She managed to come in second. Behind Linda Ackie. Now, I don't know where the two other politicians get their votes distributed. I don't know if it goes to Sidney Moore. I I don't know anything about the others. But I do know that you have a whole lot of power. You could always vote these people out of office, the ones who, after complaining and complaining and complaining, have done nothing or at least not even attempted to do anything. You, You can actually do something. You know that, right? Good. Let's find out what else is trending. What's trending in Trumplandia? Jenna Ellis, friend of the show, was a Donald Trump attorney during the campaign. And I believe she was also there during the second impeachment. But I don't remember precisely the timeline. But she has since started to support Ron DeSantis and his campaign for president. And that means the diehard Trump fans absolutely loathe her. They see her as disloyal. They see her as disloyal as if you can never support a candidate you think might be the better choice. And it's not just that they're calling her disloyal, which is, I I think, a rather silly smear. They are viciously going after her and calling her out. And celebrating the fact that she, along with all the others in Georgia, got indicted. And the same people who say that at least when it comes to Donald Trump, that these indictments are all a result of politics, 
the weaponization of either the Department of Justice, the weaponization of the criminal justice system on the state level, the ones who are calling this out, they're the ones who are laughing at Jenna Ellis, which, number one, is completely classless. And number two, it shows them not to be principled in any meaningful way. It's either abuse or it's not. It's either weaponization or it's not. These are either frivolous indictments or they're not. The recipient of the indictment should not matter if you're principled. And for them to act this way against Jenna Ellis is as disgusting as it is disturbing because it suggests that these people have no interest in any of this, have no interest in what the implications are for the weaponization of the criminal justice system. The implication for this country, not just our institutions, but this country, they don't seem all that interested to the people I'm talking about. It's about their fealty to Trump. And that's where, to me, it becomes cult-like. And it is such a turnoff to voters. The cult-like status of Donald Trump turns off moderate voters and turns off Republican voters, regardless of how they personally feel about Donald Trump. It's just weird. And if this, as I'm speaking, rings true to conduct you have been involved in, person who is listening right now, either on the radio or on podcast. I hope you'll consider what you're doing and how you're doing it. Because you're either principled or you're merely a super fan of one individual. And if that's the case, fine. But just know that you won't be taken seriously as a voter. And your push to defend Donald Trump won't be taken as seriously if you're not basing your position in principles and values. Now, one of the crazies, and she is a crazy, who's calling Jen Ellis out is Laura Loomer. She is a nut job. She is a fringe, far, 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 far to the right activist. And the only time she should be amplified is to call her out. She DM'd me once. Because someone was in town, and I can't remember who it was, but a politician. Might have been might have been Biden. And you know what I did? Nothing. I didn't open it. I don't want anything to do with her drama. But I did want to respond by, go away, you nasty person. She tweeted, professional liar and Trump backstabber Jenna Ellis was indicted last night. For the last several months, she has been attacking Donald Trump online with Team DeSantis. That's not true. She betrayed Donald Trump. I personally think she intentionally sabotaged him because I can't fathom how anyone can be as stupid as she is and decided to support Ron DeSantis instead. This woman is vile. She's a liar. And she doesn't deserve your sympathy, your prayers, your forgiveness, or your money. Loyalty matters, Jenna Ellis. You didn't stay loyal to President Trump, and now you're going to learn the hard way by having to pay for your own legal fees. That's a weird brag, that right? That's like a weird slam. So you don't care that this is a scam indictment? Or you only care about this weird sense of loyalty that you don't understand? No one is deserving of this amount of loyalty when someone legitimately believes another candidate or another president or another politician or whatever 
is a quality candidate who can actually win. It's not disloyal to think that or to say that. You can love Donald Trump while also saying, actually, I also think so-and-so has a better shot at winning. You can hold both of those positions. But there's some folks who don't want a single even potential slight against Donald Trump, and then they are deemed the enemy. That's not a healthy mind space to be in. Vivek Ramaswamy, I think, is handling this perfectly. And maybe a lot of this is is politics because he does have to make sure he doesn't alienate the Trump supporters. But he was asked on Fox News about these indictments. And obviously, he's in a position, he's running against Donald Trump, that he wants to beat him. He could easily make this about how corrupt he is and how he can't win. Listen to how he responds. Neil, you know, I've had this conversation before. There is a difference between a bad judgment and an illegal act. And I view this indictment in the context of, as you put it, three other independent indictments. The first one beginning in New York for a novel election and and campaign contribution theory to one that has a novel theory of interpreting the Presidential Records Act to a novel theory of attorney-client relationships. When you have a series of novel legal theories that are used to indict a prior U.S. president and a sitting candidate in the middle of an election, I just don't think that's good for the country. He very easily could have just gone after Trump. He didn't. He wants to beat Donald Trump. You guys know that, right? So is he this evil sellout too? 1-800-465-8770. If you want to send me a text, when we come back, we're going to talk with another landlord because, boy, are there a lot of problems in Seattle. Don't forget our friend and local tax expert, Greg Nunn of Nunn Better Tax Resolution. He's growing and he's looking for tax specialists. If you're passionate about fighting for taxpayers and you're interested in a job, call Greg Nunn, N-U-N-N, 425-947-1967. It's a Jason Rant Show. Since we started talking about Jason Roth, a Seattle landlord who was made homeless while dealing with an absolute nightmare of a tenant, we've been hearing from a lot of landlords also in Seattle basically saying the same thing, that doing business in the city is nearly impossible, that the laws are so lopsided that landlords have very little recourse when dealing with folks who are clearly acting out in bad faith. One of the individuals who reached out to us represents a group called Seattle Grassroots Landlords. Her name is Charlotte Thistle, and she joins me now. Welcome to the show. Hi, thanks for having me on. And just to clarify, I don't, I, I will definitely do my best to represent <laughs> the other Seattle Grassroots Landlords, yes. but I, I don't have a, an official. You are a voice within the organization, and you, you're clearly dealing with issues that other landlords are dealing with in, in Seattle. I mean, you make the point that in the last several years, about 17 new laws have been passed that just make it very difficult. So from your perspective, just big picture, what is it like being a landlord in the city of Seattle? Being, Especially being a small landlord, which is our, our group of almost 600 people, um, it is so bad that people are just selling their properties and leaving in droves. Um, and that's supported by actually data from the city registration database that between 20 to 25 percent of small landlords I should say it's specifically um, properties with one to four units in them Mm -hmm. have been removed from the rental market just in the last two years wow 
and that at a time when we're told there's a housing emergency. Right, exactly. What is the biggest obstacle for landlords here? Um, oh, gosh. I'm, I'm supposed to pick one. <laughs> uh, pick, pick your top few. My top few. Um, my personal, something that's been like quite close to home for me has been dealing with behavior issues in rental housing, particularly dealing with harassment. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's there is right now no way to really deal with or very, very, very little recourse to deal with a situation where you have a, a person in rental housing who's either harassing their neighbors, like other people in adjacent rental units or the owner of the property. Um, in order to deal with a situation like that, it's just so bureaucratic and burdensome that it can take like a year and $20,000 in legal fees to evict a person who's creating a serious problem in a rental housing situation. Um, that's a problem for women. It's a problem for, you know, anyone that's subject to racial harassment, mm-hmm. any type of vulnerable populations. And it isn't even, it's not just for landlords. In a lot of situations, and this has happened in my, I, I own a house. I'm a single mom. I own one house and I rent out rooms in my house. And it has happened um, in my house where we did have a person who was, harassing and creating an uncomfortable situation for other female tenants and it was quite scary when i was looking at wow what's it going to take if this thing had to go to court mm-hmm. um and it's and i talked to some lawyers and they and we actually did a informational little five minute youtube video about it um we met actually i and a couple other landlords and um a lawyer by the name of ryan weatherstone who has experience dealing with both sides the tenant and the landlord law. We all met with council member Tammy Morales about two years ago. Good luck. And so there's some excerpts of that online. So it was, we made her really aware of what was going on and you know, it, it, yeah, it didn't result in, yeah. in any changes in the law whatsoever. So. Well, what in this particular case, just so people get a better understanding of what it's truly like, what, what was this individual doing? Um, in our case, inappropriate messages i don't want to go into a lot of detail because some of it was just really kind of creepy but sure. like, but like sexually mes- tinge stuff oh yeah um yeah on text message on the you know tagging people in weird things mm-hmm. on social media you know it was just uh, yeah so clearly inappropriate behavior <laughs> brandishing a knife at one wow. time i mean it was like it was just, yeah, it was bad. But luckily, in my case, we were able to, like, work out kind of a negotiation solution where I got some social workers and the family involved. Mm-hmm. And so that worked. Um, but if that had failed, I don't know what I would have done. Well, yeah, let, let's just say for, for the sake of argument that you tried your best. You did it in good faith, even though, by the way, you wouldn't even have to, I don't think, when you have someone who's clearly acting inappropriate and is a potential threat. But let's just say you, you tried to, to come to a resolution. It didn't happen. And you just want this person out of your home. How would you go about right. doing that under the law here? Um, you have to use, unless there's like a, an actual crime that has been committed, I, I should say not an arrest has to have been made. Mm-hmm. If there's not, if there hasn't been an arrest, then you have to go through. It's um, the only the only recourse is through a, it's a ten 
say I'm not a lawyer. <laughs> I made a documentary video on this, but you have to you have to treat it as a lease violation. There's no provision for dealing with this other than you have to have a lease that says you're not allowed to harass other people, and then you have to document this person was harassing people as a lease violation, um, and then you have to document three, I think three of those instances in a 12 month period before you can go to court with it. And then you have to prove each and every instance in court. Is this what you're seeing as being the big reason or the main reason why some folks are just getting out of landlording that it's just too Um, hard to get rid of people who just, you guys made a mistake in, in accepting this person. In some cases you have no choice. You have to accept them into the home because they, you know, applied first and just can't get rid of them. Um, it's one of the things, you know, another thing is property damage. There's, you can't, there's no basis for evicting somebody, um, due to property damage specifically. I think there should be, I think there should be a provision. Like, and I'm not talking about like putting a hole in the wall when you might hang a picture. Yeah. What I'm talking about, we've had a situation where somebody took an ax to the kitchen cabinets, right? Like <laughs> vandalism. Um, we've had people where there's like, huge amounts of garbage piled up in the yard. The toilet's been broken. Somebody, um, one couple, an elderly couple that owned one rental property, they had somebody who got in there. They didn't even uh, initially agree to rent to. It was the daughter of, or supposedly, I don't even know for sure if it is the actual daughter, but they had a tenant they had rented to who passed away of old age. And then this other person showed up and said, I'm the daughter and I'm going to take over the lease and they wanted to be agreeable. So they're like, okay, you know, uh, but then the person never paid any rent and moved a bunch of friends in and turned into a, basically a party house, broke the toilet um, somehow. I don't know how. And then because the toilet was broken, they got this like literally $20,000 water bill Jeez. and under the laws in the city, uh, if there's somebody living in the house, the water can't be disconnected. And also, you, the landlord can't change it over into the tenant's name. Like, the tenant would have to call mm-hmm. and request to have it changed in their name. I don't even think a tenant can have a water bill in their name. Um, and so they're stuck with this bill, and they can't do anything about it. They can't shut off the water. They can't get any money from the city. And there's just nothing they can do. They're over a barrel, and they're, like, elderly people on a pension. I, I don't even know how they're continuing to pay their mortgage. Yeah. Well, and again, at the same time, you also have these various rules on – on you know how how much lead time you have to give someone if you're going to raise rents you're going to be potentially limited on the amount of money that you can collect on a just a, a down payment for a uh yeah it's just oh yeah there's all kinds of little rules like that as well that just add to the to the risk level um and then there are these several eviction um bans or defenses to evictions mm-hmm. that have been passed during so winter the COVID eviction moratorium yeah there's the winter eviction ban there's the school year eviction ban which i guess technically you would say it's not exactly a ban like you could evict someone but if you go to court to evict someone they can argue well you know i have kids in school yeah it's a new defense to stay in the home school. yeah and it and that's from september through june so it's yeesh. why do you what continue do you do? to do this Oh, I'm I'm not. I'm. Oh, actually, you're out now it's completely. I'm I'm in the process of renov. Well, no, I'm getting out. I'm renovating, and I'm my my plan is to sell my house in the, the new year. So, 
Do you see this coming to a head anytime soon where it's just can't it can't be ignored anymore? Well, we have an election coming up and there's a lot of um, turnover on city council. So I'm really, I'm really hopeful that we're going to be able to get some some people in there who are going to implement some, you know, common sense housing policy that's going to work for everyone. You know, because what's been happening here, it's like the policies that have been passed in the last few years on the rental, you know, rental housing, tenant protections, on, you know, you could write tenant protections that weren't so extreme. Yeah. You could write a tenant protection that, like, really just protects the tenant but also protects the landlord. But that's not what's happened. You no, know, we have been, like, an It's because, let's be clear, these- just real quickly, because I think this is an important part for people at home to understand. When, when mm-hmm. you take a position, not you, when a council member takes a position that housing is a human right and that you are owed housing – and that all landlords are greedy and part of these big developer groups, it's very easy to justify the kinds of rules and laws that they've put in place. We have gone, I mean, every single meeting where these kind of policies are discussed, there is small landlords that go to these meetings and we tell them, you know, we're small landlords. This policy is going to hurt us. Um, we can't do business this way. And we tell them, this is what's going to happen if you do this. You know, landlords are going to leave the market because we can't work with this. It's not feasible. And unfortunately, there has been this very radical voice on city council who is just every meeting, don't listen to the landlords. They're lying. If they were real small landlords, they wouldn't mind our policy. Our policy can't hurt landlords. And and just disinformation, disinformation. And and ideological policy making as opposed to pragmatic policy making, you know, most tenants, 99 percent of tenants are great people. Uh, it's like a point one percent that's being enabled by irresponsible, irresponsibly written policies. Very quickly, last question for you, because you point out that there's an election coming up. But obviously, with 600 or so members of this organization, they've likely voted for some of the people who put in these policies in the first place. So how active will you guys be to remove the incumbents who are all responsible for what we're seeing? How active will our group of 600 be? I mean, (laughs) Are you door knocking? Are you sending emails? Are you, you know, are you getting organized in a bigger way or is it just 600 individuals who are making sure that they vote? Oh, um, I mean, there's definitely a few people involved in door knocking and, and, uh, you know, talking, we're always talking with city council members and city council candidates. We always try to make a point to reach out and, and at least have a conversation with all the candidates and, you know, try to get them thinking about ways to write responsible housing policy. Maybe one day they'll actually listen. But you know what? How about this? I I hope so. Well, I I actually don't hope so because I don't want them in office to be in a position where they will start listening. I think it's time for them to be replaced. Uh, But we'll see what ends up happening uh, once people start getting their uh, ballots in the next couple months. Charlotte Thistle, Seattle Grassroots Landlords. Thank you so much for stopping by. Thanks for having me on the show. Absolutely. You're listening to The Jason Rant Show. Welcome back to The Jason Rant Show. We have some breaking news. America First Legal 
just announced that they have sued the governor of Washington State, Governor Jay Inslee, to block enforcement of what I think they're quoting me when I said this, the state-sanctioned kidnapping bill that allows kids to, and I mean kids, we're talking about youth, minors, to run away from home so that they can seek, quote-unquote, gender-affirming care, including surgical intervention. And when they go to a youth shelter, the youth shelter is not allowed to tell the parents where their kids are. Senate Bill 5599, we've covered it rather extensively. It is now under a lawsuit. So it's the America First Legal Group, which I think they've been on the show in the past, but they do a lot of work on behalf of conservatives. But their co-counsel includes Joel Ard, who is local. His name pops up from time to time. It's not just Jay Inslee who is being sued. It's also Bob Ferguson, Attorney General, and Ross Hunter, who is the Secretary of the Washington Department of Children, Youth, and Families, the DCYF, which is an agency that would be directly tied to this particular bill. And they say over at America First Legal, the recently signed legislation creates a dangerous incentive for minors who disagree with their parents on gender-affirming care to run away to a shelter or a host home. The new law takes away a requirement of notice to parents. The law authorizes the state to refer a minor for behavioral health services without even defining what this entails. They say in practice, this means that young children who run away from home could be receiving chemical sterilization drugs or even genital mutilation without the consent or knowledge of the parents. And we've been talking about that aspect a lot because you'll recall originally Marco Leas, the state senator behind this from Muckleteo, he came out and said, oh, no, 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 this has nothing to do with surgeries. That has nothing to do with it. That was a lie. He wasn't mistaken. He was lying because it's in the bill. It's in the bill that he authored. And so what they basically said is to a, let's say a 15-year-old kid is convinced That she is a boy because her teacher told her to, told her so, told her to commit to being a boy, including ultimately surgical intervention where she would have her breasts removed, so-called top surgery. Under the law in Washington state, if she goes to her parents and says, I want top surgery, and the parent even says, whoa, 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 we're going to have to talk about this. She could just run away at that point and she could get that surgery without parental consent, without the parent even knowing where she's staying. That's what this bill, that's what this law created. And so I'm glad someone is taking them to court on this. Of course, there was also a move To get this on the November ballot, it was too quick. They weren't able to. I think they only came short of like 8,000 signatures, which is remarkable how many signatures they got in such a short period of time. And so I bet that that's going to come back at some point. But this is very good news, courtesy of America First Legal. At the same time, we also got an update courtesy of the Bellevue Police Department. Came in just a few minutes ago. 
We now have the identity of the officer we told you about yesterday. 39-year-old Kevin Beretta was working the vice president's motorcade when she was in town yesterday for a couple speeches. When there was some kind of incident where he was ejected off of his motorcycle and it caused him to fall off the Michigan Street on-ramp onto southbound lanes of I-5. And once he landed on the, the freeway, don't know what happened after that. But obviously, if you're landing on a freeway, you know, that's going to cause some extra potential threats of cars hitting you. Now, I haven't seen any information suggesting that he was hit by a car, but he's now in critical condition and in intensive care at Harborview Medical Center. He joined the force in 2018. He transferred to the traffic division as a motorcycle officer just three years ago. Vice President Kamala Harris called Chief Wendell Shirley, Bellevue PD chief, to check on the officer and to express her concern for him and his family, that according to the Bellevue Police Department. We don't know at this point what caused the quote-unquote incident, just being referred to as an incident. We don't know what caused it for him to fall off of that sort of on-ramp overpass. But the Washington State Patrol is investigating and hopefully will be able to get us some answer as to what happened. We'll keep an eye on that story as well. Make sure you're keeping him in your prayers. 1-800-465-8770. If you want to send me a text, you're listening to The Jason Brandt Show.